The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you joining online. Uh, it's good to have you here in service today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 17. Uh, the notes are there in your worship folder as well. We've been uh, diving into this uh, thing called hope, man, and, and uh, Romans chapter 15 Verse 4 teaches us that everything that was written um, was written to teach us through the endurance um, and the encouragement that we find um, in the Old Testament. Paul says everything that was written, it was written to teach us and to provide hope for us. And so as we read and we look back in some of the stories in the Old, it has this powerful ability to create and stir up hope within us. And we often need hope because there are a lot of discouraging things that can happen in life. Um, a lot of times you'll be going along, man, and things are just um, humming right along, and you feel great about things, and then out of nowhere, something can hit you, and you need a lot of hope to navigate through whatever it may be that you're facing. And so as we close this series out, I've enjoyed it as we jumped in uh, in the spur. I don't remember when it was. Several weeks ago, we jumped into this series. I think this is the 10th uh, sermon out of the series, Hope, but I want to close it out. Uh, today by uh, hearing from one of, one of the greatest theologians ever, and that is um, the one I was just referring to, the Apostle Paul, who wrote that verse in Romans chapter um, 15, verse 4. And he has an amazing story. Um, the Apostle Paul is a guy that is anti-Jesus. Now, there are a lot of anti-Jesus people in the world today, um, and Paul was one. And what's interesting about Paul is he was not anti-religious. He was not anti-God. He was not anti-Moses. He was just anti-Jesus. And he was so anti-Jesus that um, he had lived this life where he had spent his whole life growing up, studying the scriptures, and even into adulthood, he, he was um, uh, a person who was seeking to be a member of the Sanhedrin, which is basically a the religious, religious leadership of the Jewish people, of the nation of Israel. And that was a big deal then. Um, they sort of set the tone for all that was happening. That's why they were so instrumental in seeing that Jesus was even crucified, as they led the people in a very significant and powerful way. And, and Paul was on his way to becoming a, a member of uh, that religious group and, and that religious leadership. And when Jesus uh, came on the scene, he was claiming to be God in the flesh. He was claiming to be the Messiah. And man, they, they just missed that. The Jewish people uh, from a religious or from a, a leadership standpoint, they missed that entirely. Went right over their heads. And they labeled Jesus as a blasphemer. And then Jesus rises from the dead, and all these people are following him, and they're trying to get the handle on it. They're trying to stamp this thing out, man. And so Paul is a guy who is um, going to go, and, and he's basically on a mission to arrest Christians, get them to quit talking and speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. And there's a movement that has happened. Um, the, the Christians have sort of scattered and you could read about this in the book of Acts because of persecution that has broken out. And Paul was um, the one that uh, gave the thumbs up for the first martyr of the Christian faith, which was Stephen. 
Um, it says that when Stephen was martyred, who is Stephen was just a man filled with the Holy Spirit, the Word says, and when he was um, martyred, stoned for teaching in the name of Christ, Paul was the guy who was in sort of the leadership position that gave the thumbs up to go ahead and, and kill Stephen. And so now, after that, that murder or, or martyred him of Stephen, they, they stone him by, or they execute him by stoning, then a lot of the Christians leave Jerusalem, and they start scattering, which often, you know, Kevin was talking about what the, in that song, the Lord takes what is meant for evil, and he uses it for good. And the, the, the blood of the martyrs, it has been said that the blood of the martyrs was the seedbed for the church. Because once persecution happened, man, Christians started leaving Jerusalem. They started traveling around. They were, they were fleeing. But as they were fleeing, they were taking the gospel into these other places. And they end up in, a group of them end up in Damascus. And there's a real movement of the Lord happening in the city of Damascus. And people are coming to know the Lord. And so there's a uh, you know, it's, it's sort of spreading and it's making its way back to uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so Paul gets letters from the high priest that give him the authority to go into Damascus and stamp this thing out. And so he's on his way to Damascus. He's riding on a donkey and it's in the middle of the day and he has an encounter with Jesus. And you can read all about Paul's uh, testimony. He goes from his name being Saul to being called Paul in this transformation that happens as he's riding along and he encounters the risen Christ. And so I would say I've encountered the risen Christ, but, but the difference between my encounter and Paul's encounter is I heard the voice of the Lord, I come to know the Lord, I gave my life to the Lord, I surrendered to him. But in Paul's case, like the resurrected Christ in physical form showed up and knocked him off his beep, his donkey. <laughs> and so, and so he hits the ground and he recognizes immediately that he's in the presence of God. He doesn't know who it is. And the voice that's speaking to him, and he's blinded by this light, is saying, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. His worst nightmare. Everything, everything that Paul was fighting to stamp out in this moment in time in his life becomes true. And he hated Jesus. He hated all the Christ followers. But now he has the resurrected Christ himself. So you have a guy that is bent on stamping out Christianity immediately having a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction. He's totally going, he thinks he's, he thinks and believes that he's sold out and living for God. But he comes to find out that he is severely mistaken and wrong. And his life takes on a completely different direction. Now, what is, what's really cool about that is up to this point, all of the leaders in the church, for the most part, God, Jesus picked, he handpicked um, normal guys, you know, fishermen and, and people that were rejected a lot in society. But when he picks Paul, he picks a guy who knows 
theology, who knows the Old Testament, was required to memorize most of the Old Testament because it was an oral society and part of their their tradition. I was a written society at this point, but back in Jewish history, it was it was always and it was passed down orally, and so the rabbis had to memorize a ton, and so they knew they knew the word like, like, like that's what they did. They spent their time learning the word and teaching the word. And Paul, he knew it. He had an incredible uh, knowledge of the scriptures. And so after this encounter, it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 22, that Paul, he's staying there in Damascus, and he does this about face. He goes from being anti-Jesus to being pro-Jesus. We would say, he got saved, man. Like, this guy was born again. He was born of the Spirit of God. And even though he knew all of the Old Testament, all of a sudden the Old Testament took on this completely different meaning because now he had the Spirit of God living inside of him and and dwelling him. And Ananias comes and prays for him, and um, the Holy Spirit comes over him, and he starts ministering in Damascus. And it says in verse 22 that Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Paul would go back and he would take all these passages in the Old Testament because they didn't have the New Testament, right? That's that's being written at this time. That's what we're, you know, some of these verses I'm reading from are New Testament, they're a historical account of what God has preserved for us, of what was happening in the church. But at the time that Paul was doing this, all there was was the Old Testament, and they were living out everything that Jesus had taught them, and they were writing down the things that Jesus had taught, and that's where we come up with the New Testament. And so Paul is taking the Old Testament, and he's proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And he's engaged in this activity, and he is good at taking Jesus, throwing him back to the Old Testament and saying, look, you see this passage right here? And he, he could do it over and over and over again. And one such thing, one, one time that he does that comes out of the book of Corinthians. It's found in the New Testament, and it says this in chapter 10. Four verses, Paul says this, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and um, they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And so Paul is saying, man, when... When the people went through the Red Sea, when the people were delivered out of the bondage of Egypt, when the people were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years and God was supplying for them and and God was leading them by the uh, pillar of fire and the cloud um, that represented his presence, that was Jesus. And and so that's what Paul is basically saying. And he he says, look, they... They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and, and, and so they're following the law that was given to Moses, but Paul is saying that it was in fact Jesus that was the one giving 
that law. It was Jesus that was the one leading them. It was Jesus in the Old Testament, just like it is Jesus in the New Testament. That's where we get the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's all God. Like Jesus is God. And so we, we refer to him as, as God's Son. Why do we do that? Because he manifests himself in flesh. He is the firstborn of God himself. He has a human mother, but he has a spiritual father. That's why we believe in the, uh, um, the miracle or the miracle of the virgin birth is that it is a miraculous birth. He's fully God and he's fully man. And so, um, we, we see him in the old Testament and Paul says, um, this rock that Israel drank from was Jesus in the old Testament. So what in the world is this rock that they drank from? When we go back to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, we find this this encounter where the people of God, they're wandering around in, in the desert. They're being led by Moses. They've left a life of slavery and bondage, but they haven't really figured out how to be a nation, and it's not a plentiful time, and they haven't been able to enter the promised land yet because of their sinfulness and disobedience that happened that we talked about a few weeks ago when Moses was actually given the law and he comes down um, from Mount Sinai. And so as they're wandering around there, it says in Exodus chapter 17, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses. Now, this is really important. He says, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Mesa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so we have this account in Israel's history where there's several of these, okay? They go through this, this period of grumbling and doubt. And what you have to understand about the Old Testament is that, it, that, that it's different for them than it is for us. In the sense that in the New Testament, now that God has come in the flesh through, the, through Jesus, he's died on the cross, he's been resurrected, and now all men can know him personally, he sends the Holy Spirit back to indwell in us. They did not live under that. They did not have um, the ability to know God and have God living on the inside of them. They just simply did it in their own power by what they could see God doing and, and what God was, was calling them to. Now, they, they still lived a life by faith, and sometimes God would raise up special people like Moses 
and the Spirit of God would fall on them for an anointing, and they, were, they had the ability uh, to lead and, and, and speak for God, but everybody didn't possess that. Now, right now, as I'm speaking to you guys, and I'm talking about uh, the uh, new covenant that we live under, the covenant of grace, we all can possess the Holy Spirit. It's not that God has set me apart as a special work and I'm the only one that can have the Holy Spirit because I'm a preacher. No, everybody can possess the Holy Spirit. When we call upon the name of the Lord, we confess our sins, He forgives us of our sins, and we receive the Holy Spirit. And so these people didn't live that way. They didn't have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God did not indwell people. That's why they had the Ark of the Covenant, and God's presence was to be in the Ark of the Covenant. In the New Testament, Christians are the Ark of the Covenant, and God's presence dwells inside of us. And so the God, in this moment of these people starting to grumble, they're traveling around in this desert land, and they don't have anything to drink, and they're thirsty, and they're parched, and you know how it is if you get really, really, really thirsty, right? I mean, you get really, really, really thirsty, and you just lose all control. Right? You're just like, I can't do anymore. And then you, if you didn't have any water, like in that moment, you either go back to where there's some water and you get you a drink, you go in the house, or, or you go, if you're out working somewhere, maybe you go to Quick Trip and you get you a bottle of water. You go get some water somewhere. They didn't have any water. And so it was just getting worse and worse. And everywhere they looked, it just made them more thirsty because everything was dry, right? And so what do they do? They look at Moses and say, why did you bring us out here into this desolate place? Why did you do it? We were better off in Egypt. We may have been slaves, but at least we had something to drink. And right now we're about to die because we don't have anything to drink. And so God shows up in this moment and he provides in a desperate time as he often does. The people are in peril. They'll die unless they receive some miraculous help. And they were so desperate and they were so frustrated. They wanted, like Moses felt like they were going to kill him. That's bad, right? So if you're ever having a bad day, just think about, oh, Mo, man, the people of God wanted to kill him and he let them out of bondage. And so uh, the Lord answers them, and he tells Moses to strike this rock with this stick. Now, where does this, what is this about this stick? And he, says, and he specifically says, use the stick um, that you, you struck the Nile with. Well, we know that when Moses was called of God and he had the burning bush experience, um, and he was like feeling inadequate, God said, and he, he was like trying to talk God out of it. <laughs> That's so absurd. Why do we try to talk God out of things, right? If God has said that we're supposed to do something, we should not be trying to talk God out of something. That is a, ba- that's a recipe for disaster in our own lives. And so here, G- Moses is not really wanting to do what God is asking him. He's feeling inadequate. And God says, what is that in your hand? And it's his shepherd's staff. And, and basically, he starts to show him, I'm going to use that thing in your hand. I'm going to use the one thing you have, that staff, and that's going to be the, the powerful thing that you're going to use to lead the people out of Israel. So we look at the 10 plagues, and it was always the staff that was involved in those plagues that finally convinced Pharaoh to let the people of Israel leave, and they left um, out of that bondage of Egypt. And so one of the times, you know, we know he, he held his staff out over the Red Sea and it parted. But we know another time, one of the plagues was he struck the Nile. And that's the one that is mentioned here. He says, take that staff from which you struck the Nile and um, strike the rock. Now, 
What is it about the Nile? This is so really cool. Okay, now, now you have to understand, this is happening. So you let me build your faith up a little bit. This is happening thousands of years before Jesus is ever on the scene, before they know who, like this is happening way back in Israel's history. And Paul is referring to that, and he's saying they drank from the same spiritual rock, which is Jesus. And so what is going on? So Paul, he, he, put, the, he put this together, and he preserved it for us. And so um, as we look at it, what, what is this about? Well, when, when Moses takes the, the staff and he strikes the Nile, do you remember what the plague was? It turned to blood, and the fish started to die, and there was a foul stench. They said, well, did the whole river turn to blood? I don't know. I don't know. Was it real blood? I don't know. I just know that it says it turned to blood and a bunch of fish died and they couldn't drink the water. And it was, it was a form of judgment on Egypt. You say, you really believe that? You really believe that? that I mean, come on, Jimmy, come on. Listen, let's back up. We believe like the fundamental doctrine of our faith is a dead man rose from the d- grave, Okay. So that's a little tougher, being dead three days, coming back to life, than the Nile, like, turning into blood and fish dying. That's a little, like, that one actually is a little easier. And so just want you to know what we actually believe. Yes, I believe that's what happened. I believe that God is a miraculous God, and he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and I believe he's going to return to the planet someday. And so um, here we go. See, that he strike that, strike that rock with that 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 staff that you struck the Nile with. And so Moses strikes the rock, and what happens? Water starts coming out of the rock, man. And the people are like, yes! It's like us when we're thirsty and we see Quick Trip, right? He struck that rock, man. He went in there, and they just come in there and started getting water, and the livestock could drink. And it was a miracle as God showed up and provided for the people. And so they were asking while they were quarreling, is the Lord among us? Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, we know that Jesus always shows up in perilous times. That's why when we're going through something difficult, we start to pray. We want to see Jesus show up and help us in the midst of the, mo- the moment we are experiencing. And so we, we begin to pray because we need a miracle. And why do we do that? Because we see that the Old Testament and the New Testament, they both teach us to do that, to continually rely on the Lord. In John chapter 7, well, let's back up. Even in John chapter 4, I taught this a couple of weeks ago. Remember, Jesus comes to the woman at the well, and he begins to talk to her about water, that he has water that if she drank from the water that he offers, she'd never get thirsty again. You know that story? And so he said, and, and so, Lord, she says, give me this water so I don't have to come to this well anymore. And she was thinking he was talking about physical water and he was talking about spiritual water. Well, in John 7, 37, Jesus calls all who thirst to come and drink. And so he's saying all who have thirst come and drink. John records that when Jesus was crucified, the common practice from the, from the uh, Romans was that to ensure that the person was dead, they had this, this thing called crucifracture. And what they would do is they would go up with a big club because when you died on the cross of Calvary, you didn't die because you bled to death. What happened was 
is you, it was such an awful form of execution because you would, you would, your legs would be slightly bent and you'd be suspended from your arms. And you had to push up with your legs and pull on your arms to get a breath. And then you had to hang from your arms to let your breath out. And you would just go, you would go through this until eventually your body went into shock and you suffocated. You couldn't breathe anymore. You, hadn't, you didn't have the strength any longer to breathe. And so what they would do to ensure that you were dead, if they wanted to like speed things up, is they would do crucifracture, and they would come up with a club, and they would break your, your legs at the knee. They'd strike your legs. And then now you're fully suspended, and you'd die pretty quick because you couldn't push up with your legs anymore, and you'd suffocate very quickly. And so whenever Jesus was crucified, um, they, they came up to the, the thief on the right and the left, and they performed crucifracture on them. But when they came up to Jesus, the Roman guard says, what? He's already dead. And he looks over and says, hey, man, the dude's already dead. I don't need to break his legs. Now, there are two reasons that this doesn't happen. One, it was prophesied that not a bone of his broke body would be broken. So it was a fulfillment of prophecy. So they don't perform crucifixion on Jesus when they do on the two people beside him. Again, we can have confidence in our faith, something that was prophesied hundreds of years before comes to fulfillment. The second thing is they throw him a spear, and what does he do? He strikes Jesus in the side, he pulls out the spear, and what happens? Blood and water flow. Strike that rock with the stick that you struck the Nile and turned it into blood. And when you strike the rock, water will flow. It is a foreshadowing thousands of years before it would happen it is a foreshadowing of, of Christ on the cross. And the fact of the matter is, is that we are all thirsting to death for righteousness without Christ. And what is righteousness? You stop saying, you say, see a nice, real cool muscle car. You say, well, oh, that car is righteous. That's not righteousness, right? Righteousness is right, right standing before God. When I think of my, my relationship with God and I look to God, I am right before God. I have his righteousness put inside of me. I am not righteous because I preach. I am not righteous because I don't sin. I'm righteous because God has given me his righteousness. And we all would like to have that. Even if we're not believers, everybody would like to experience righteousness that I just know that I'm righteous before God. I'm, I'm, and, and sometimes we might not think of it in terms, if, if we're unbelievers, we might not be thinking of it in terms of being right before God, but we would think of it in terms of just being right. I just want to be right. Who would raise their hand and say, hey, how many of you want to be wrong right now? Nobody wants to be wrong. We want to be right. Why do we want to be right? Because it is imprinted on us as we are image bearers of God. Animals don't want to be right, do they? Like, do they? You don't look at mine. Don't look at mine. I'm telling you right now, I don't look at my dog and see an animal that is thinking, oh, "I just want to do the right thing here." <laughs> like he, he just wants to do what he wants to do. He just is living by instinct. But 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 we're not that way. We we see injustices. We see things that are wrong, and we want to be right. We want to be on the right side of things, and that comes from the righteousness of God that we is imprinted on us, and we know we know there is wrong in the world, and that is again proof for the existence of God. It's called the moral argument. 
Like so the word ought, they say, what does that mean? You ought not to have done that. You, you, you shouldn't have done that. Where does that come from? Why do we feel that way? Because it is imprinted on us. Nobody, no other species thinks like that. We are, we are image bearers of God, and simply that we can know that you shouldn't do something as proof for the existence of God. It's not man that comes up with that. Man just has it in, it's just innately inside of us. It's part of our DNA because we are image bearers of God. And so we desire to have this righteousness. And when we look to Christ, we see that he was struck by a piece of wood that makes blood flow and water flows from his side that is um, as symbolic of the eternal wellspring of life that will um, well up inside of those who come to know him. And he indeed, the Lord is among us. That's what is being taught here. And so we now have access to water that will never end. When we learn to drink from the rock, which was Christ. So back in the Old Testament, the Israelites were drinking from a literal rock that was going to be a type that was to show us who the spiritual rock was. And Paul is connecting all of that. And he's saying, man, when we drink from that rock, our thirst for righteousness can be quenched. And so our righteousness doesn't come from us doing good. Our righteousness doesn't come from us not doing bad. Our righteousness comes from the fact that we have drank from the spiritual rock of Christ. And that's it, okay? There's no other way to get it. It's a basic um, uh, just understanding of, of the doctrines of the Christian faith. And, but there's more to this story, <laughs> as there always is in the Word. And so now we look at this and we go, okay, here's the deal. Here's how we can have righteousness. We come to know the Lord. We've got this experience happening. There's another experience in the Bible that is described of the same type of thing happening. Now remember, for 40 years they're wandering around under Moses' leadership in the desert, and they're wandering in the desert. They can't enter the promised land because of their disobedience that happened when they built, uh, they, they fashioned the golden calf and started worshiping it instead of trusting and waiting on God and for Moses to report back. So now they have to wander in the, the desert for 40 years for an entire generation to die off before they can enter into the promised land. And so during this period, they have this, this thing where they're, they're, they're thirsty and they don't have any water. It happens again. And it's almost, it's almost the same story, but it has a little bit of a, a difference, okay? And, and so what is happening is, it, and that the second account is found in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. I'm not going to read all 13 um, verses, but I'm going to summarize it for you. And it's a basic technique in ancient literature of parallelism. They're just they're using these two stories to show us God is teaching something very important. Now, a lot could be understood at the time that this was written in the in the book of Numbers. But the biggest point could not be made until after the work of Christ was completed, which would be um, millennia into the future. The major difference between the two is that Moses is told the second time when this happens, to speak to the rock. Don't strike the rock, speak to the rock. In verse 8 of Numbers um, chapter 20, speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. That's what God said. But Moses didn't speak 
to the rock. He struck the rock with the staff. It says in verse 11, not only did he strike it once, he struck it twice. Then Moses raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with his staff and water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. And so Moses was told by God to speak to the rock. The big Mo, man, the guy who was used in an amazing way was told to do something this way and he did it a different way. And so there were consequences for his failure to listen to God. Listen to what verse 12 says. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Moses, you're not going into the promised land. And and why does he not get to go into the promised land? Because he didn't treat God as holy in that moment. He struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to the rock. The first time he was supposed to strike it. The second time that they they had this experience, he was supposed to speak to it. And he and Aaron are not allowed to go into the promised land. Now, there's no reason to believe that they were excluded from heaven. That's not what this is about. We're talking about the physical promised land. We know that Moses went to heaven because we know that on the Mount of Transfiguration, When Peter, James, and John were taken up the mountain with Jesus, what did they see? They saw Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So we know that Moses is safe in the hands of God because we see him in the New Testament. Now, um, but, but he didn't get to go into the promised land. Joshua was the one that got to take them into the promised land. So God was communicating something very important about the gospel. Once the rock is struck... It will never need to be struck again. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, it says this. Unlike the other high priest, and this is referring to Jesus, unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for the sins, for their sins, once for all when he offered himself. And so one time Jesus offered himself. So Jesus has already been struck. And we need to speak to him for living water. To continue to strike the rock is to jeopardize your entrance into the promised land. So for us as believers or us as non-believers, you may be here and maybe, maybe you've never drank from the rock. Maybe you've seen water come out of the rock, and I'm referring to rock as Christ, the spiritual rock. You have to drink from that rock in order to get into the promised um, land and promised life. To continue to strike the rock when you're supposed to speak to the rock can jeopardize your entrance. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. What is that saying? It's saying that people who say that they know the Lord and they continue striking the rock, and they are not speaking to the rock and drinking the water that is bringing about a transformation, they do not know the Lord. They may get right close to the Lord, but they don't actually know the Lord. And you can tell whether a person knows the Lord or doesn't know the Lord simply by how they treat the rock. To strike the rock is to draw close enough to Jesus to understand and experience the gift of grace, but reject it. 
Because you reject it, because you know the grace is there, but you know if you drink of the rock, it means that your life is no longer your own. It is all his. And those who refuse to receive the gift strike the rock rather than asking for life that Christ so freely gives. You see, one who would be guilty of striking the rock is one who thinks that you get right with God by how many times you come to church, or how much you give, or how much you serve. Or one who would be guilty of striking the rock is one who thinks that you get to heaven by not sinning, by doing, by avoiding all of the sin in your life and being a good person and helping homeless people. Those are rock strikers, just going around hitting the rock of Jesus, trying to get water out of it. But those who speak to the rock realize it doesn't matter how much good I do, and it doesn't matter how much bad I've done. The only reason I get to go into heaven is because I'm drinking from the water and the blood that came out of the side of the risen Christ. That's it. My righteousness comes from God alone. It doesn't come from the good that I do or the bad that I avoid. I don't go to hell because I'm, um, I, I, I've, I've sinned. I go to hell because I've rejected the rock. That's, a, that's the only way that we can receive righteousness. It is imparted to us. It is impugned to us. God looks at us and he sees a, a, a people that are hard-hearted and stiff-necked and he says, look, the only hope for their soul is that I go down to them. I give myself to them as the rock that provides the water that will cleanse them from their sins. It will enable them to be all that I desire for them to be. And when they drink, drink from that sacrifice, they are right with me. That's it. And so the, the big idea is simply this. Speak to the rock. Just speak to the rock. And, and, and so we look in life, and I, I've been visiting with some friends recently about, about like understanding, man, how can somebody who, you know, they, they claim to love the Lord and they, they just blow it? It happens all the time. It happened when Moses, Moses literally didn't get to go into the promised land, meaning physically he didn't get to enter into the land that was promised to them, the nation of Israel, because he treated God as unholy. So there were consequences, and he suffered from those consequences. But his heart was still bent toward the Lord. We look at King David in 1 Kings chapter 15, I think verse 5, it says that um, that David did all that was right before the Lord, all that the Lord had commanded, except for with Uriah, whom he had murdered. There's a, a major disobedience as we look at those guys. So there were consequences, man. It, it impacted his life. He had civil war within the kingdom. The kingdom divided because of David's um, experience, and he, his sons tried to kill him. I mean, it just blew up his whole house, so he suffered the consequences. And so what's the difference between the person who strikes the rock and the person who speaks to the rock? Here it is, okay? And I think I might do some teaching on this in the future. It's posture. It's your posture. So we look at people in the world, and because the world is filled with a, a lot of hypocritical people. We look at them and go, well, how do I make sense of this? And I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. 
what do you do? It's about your posture. You see, people are either postured toward the Lord, and they're listening to what he's saying. And, and when he says something and they hear it, they change their mind about the way they're thinking about it. And so maybe they're going this way and, and they hear from God and they posture toward God and God starts to convict them through the power of the Holy Spirit and the word. And they, they hear from the Lord and they go, I want to keep posturing toward the Lord. So they change their mind and they turn away and they start walking this way. A person who is a hypocrite, a person who is striking the rock, says, oh, I know what the gospel teaches. I believe in the grace of God. I've accepted Jesus for my, my, as my Savior. And then God starts to convict them of their sin. And they hear God convict them of their sin, and they listen. But they keep posturing away. And God keeps coming back, and he's like, hey, hey, hey. And they keep turning their back. You see, that's what it means to rebel against the Lord. And, and so what is so important for us is to always posture toward the Lord. When we blow it, what should we do? Posture toward the Lord. Let him work us through what it is that we uh, have rebelled from him. And, and he is quick to forgive us and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. But as soon as we start posturing away, as soon as, as, soon as the Lord is calling us into something and we start going, I want to go this way, then we are opening ourselves up for consequences. And it may not mean that we don't know the Lord. What it may mean is that there's a life that is promised to us on this side, okay? So for, for the Israelites, it was the promised land. For us, it's a promised life. And it may be that there are consequences that we experience because we continue posturing away from the Lord. We never get to experience what the Lord had for us because we won't listen to what he's asking us to do. So whatever the Lord is asking you to do in whatever moment, always posture back towards him. And it usually is not the easiest thing to do. It's usually terrifying. But when you posture toward him and you speak to the rock, the water will flow. And it will become a wellspring within you because you will have learned, you will have learned how to drink from the rock. And the water starts to well up with inside of you. And other people actually start drinking from your life because the rock is, is supplying the water and you know how to speak to it. And so the, it's just welling up inside of you and others are drinking from water that's sustaining them and they come to know the Lord through their relationship with you. And so I wanna encourage you today, man, to have hope in whatever you're facing, to always posture toward the Lord and always speak to the rock and ask yourself in every situation, am I striking the rock right now or am I speaking to it? As a humble person speaks, and a prideful person is striking the rock. I can see Moses, man, and I can relate to this. He's emotional in that moment. The people are grumbling. They're God's people. They're not even his people. They're God's people, and they're thirsty. They get the rock out of there. There's no water. They hit that thing again. And the water gushing. He goes, there you go, drink. And in that moment, right, in that moment, he, he's like frustrated, and the Lord hits him. That, bro, you haven't treated me as holy in this moment. And I love you, Moses. But before the people, like, there are consequences for what you just did. And so, man, we got to look at that and go, man, I want to try to not strike the rock. I want to speak to it. I don't want to let my emotions get the best of me. 
I always want to just like listen to the Lord and allow him to provide the healing waters and speak to that rock. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. What's the Lord saying to you in this moment? Have you been striking or speaking to the rock? And if you'd like to talk some more about this, if there's any way that I can help you, um, I know what it is to speak to the rock, and I know what it is to strike the rock. And I'm telling you, where you want to live is by speaking to the rock and not striking it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you for the story, Lord, the word, the power that it has. Lord, it's amazing that you recorded this story thousands of years before you would actually come to the planet in physical form. And then it just continues to testify of you, Jesus. We love you. We thank you. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be the type of people who are postured towards you and we're speaking to you and letting you lead us on a daily basis. We love you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.